Hardship has produced some of the most bitter people that I've ever known. The experience of the difficulties they've faced in their life has resulted in some of the people that I'm thinking of, people who are resentful, bitter, and hard in their heart. And yet, at the same time, some of the kindest people I've ever met are some of the people who have suffered most. How does that happen? How can we face adversity and hardship, letdowns and setbacks, and do so with joy even when the odds are against us? Some of you might be here this morning and you're thinking, great, it's a sermon on joy. I don't have joy. It seems like nothing in my life can give me joy. If you feel like the odds are against you, there is good news for you this morning. And Paul the Apostle is our teacher. Which is interesting because on the surface, the life of Paul the Apostle, of his writing, seemed very dark. In fact, all the things that we value in our culture, freedom, career, possessions, community, comfort, it's all been stripped from him. He's writing from a Roman jail. And yet, these are not the words of a man in despair, or one who's drowning in discouragement. Quite the opposite, he expresses words of triumph and confidence, and yes, even joy. He's celebrating, and here's why. He has an approach to adversity that enables him to experience joy even in the face of impossible odds. So our question this morning is, Can what worked for Paul work for me? And the answer is yes. I want us all to see and embrace three truths about his approach. And we need all three together if we're going to experience joy in the face of adversity. And the first truth you must acknowledge, surprisingly, is this. Adversity is a real pain. (laughs) Some of you weren't expecting that, but it's absolutely vital. It is a real pain when you go through trials. Paul the Apostle, when he gives this report from jail, he does so with honesty, repeatedly telling his hearers about what he was going through. He opens in verse 12 saying, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, we will get to the latter part of that sentence in a moment, but I want you to note the first part. He says, I want you to know that what has happened to me. See, Paul is writing to the Philippian church in the first century to teach them, but also to inform them. Because this community of men and women has actually been supporting Paul, both financially and relationally and practically in his work as a church planner. And yet along the way, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem on the basis of false charges. He was betrayed. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was denied basic human necessities. And now he's in a Roman jail. So he talks openly and honestly about his chains. He's like, I am in jail. When he writes to his friends, he does not ignore 
the hard truth of adversity, and neither should we. Listen, real joy is not a matter of pretending that hardship doesn't hurt. Real joy is not a matter of pretending that adversity does not afflict. The Christian view of facing adversity and joy is not a stick your head in the sand, everything's fine, guys, and you would be forgiven for thinking that because oftentimes within the modern church, we're given the impression that Christian joy comes from the fact that nobody faces hardship and we're all just happy clappy. I remember um, thinking this when in my early years as a Christian, I went to the Christian bookstore and um, I'm going to be honest right now, I do tend to judge books based on their cover. There are a lot of terrible book covers out there, particularly in the Christian world. It just, is this a safe place? It just needs to be said. So I bought this book on suffering. It was something like walking with God through pain and suffering. What was on the cover? A deer. Just like, like looking over, you know, like there's like a creek behind and like, you know, foliage. And I was like, what? Does this have, I, I don't understand. Like, is the deer going to get shot? Like, I don't know. Maybe they needed to put crosshairs on there. Like, hey, suffering's coming. You got to be prepared. I, I don't know. But it gives us an impression that Christians are these stoics and everything's just fine. Sometimes church gatherings can be participated in in such a way that suffering and hardship is denied or it is minimized. And you talk about joy and it's like, everything's fine. But that's not biblical. That's not what we find here in Philippians. That would be a distortion of what the Bible teaches. And one of the reasons I point that out is because if that's your impression and things aren't going well for you and you show up to church, you must think you're doing something wrong. You're like, wow, all these people are happy clappy. So if, if joy is based on everything being good, then clearly I don't have it or I'm doing something wrong. I've totally missed it. But something we need to be very clear about, especially in this series on joy, is that Christian joy is not rooted in your circumstances. Christian joy is not anchored in your circumstances. That means that real joy allows for emotional honesty about your circumstances. This is huge. You and I do not have to pretend, you don't have to wear a mask when you're around other Christians or in your prayers, just pretend that everything is okay. In fact, one of the things I love about the Bible is that it is the most honest book on planet earth about everything, but particularly about the human condition and suffering and hardship. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was actually referred to it was prophesied that he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. See, this is important because if you get this perspective that like real joy just pretends that hardship doesn't exist, that will impact the way you view God. God's like looking down at the world like, what are you, what is happening? What? You guys are suffering? What's suffering? Define adversity. And yet we read about Jesus and he plunges himself into the depths of the adversity of this broken world. But having said that, and it is an important point for us to acknowledge this morning that 
adversity is a real pain. You can be honest about that this morning. But I also want you to note that this is not a misery memoir. Paul's not, like, Paul's not like writing, hey, let me tell you how bad it is. And by the way, chapter two, it gets worse. Chapter three, it's far worse than you could possibly imagine. Chapter four, it's terrible at the end. That's not the book of Philippians. He's honest about his circumstances, and so should we. We can say, hey, my health is not good. Our finances are not good. My marriage is in trouble. Friendships are, are difficult. We can be honest. But that's not the whole of this letter. He does not leave it at that. Nonetheless, he has joy. In fact, he's triumphing. Why? He's found a way to view his problems that result in joy. Not minimize them or bury them, but a way to interpret them that brings him joy. So yes, there is pain. It is real and it is not meaningless. There is a choice that we have in the midst of adversity, in the midst of difficult circumstances to interpret what's happening. You may have heard of a, a book. It's, it's now famous. It's been translated into many languages, read by millions. It's a book called Man's Search for Meaning, written by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish doctor who survived the death camps during World War II. And after his experience, he wrote this book, Man's Search for Meaning. And that's one of his huge points, is the ability to choose how you're going to view things within your suffering. He says this, everything can be taken from man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And I think he's right. We have a choice to make. Now, he doesn't tell us where we can anchor that choice, but he tells us that we do have a choice. See, Paul is showing us here and being honest about the pain and yet still having joy. He's showing us that, yes, our circumstances are not based in, our joy is not based in our circumstances, but that also means that our joy doesn't need to be controlled by our circumstances. So notice Paul, he's not sticking his head in the sand pretending everything's okay. Nor is he being cynical. In fact, the original language of verse 2 is when he says that these things have actually served to advance the gospel. The original translation could be, after mature consideration, I discerned. It means that he had to think about it. He's in jail and he's like, this is bad. But let me stop and think about it. So what was he thinking? Well, that leads to the second point. The second truth you need to embrace if you're going to experience joy and adversity, the first is this. Adversity is a real pain. You can be honest about it. But secondly, adversity can serve a redemptive purpose. It can serve a redemptive purpose. Paul interprets his situation in light of what? Well, he says, look at his description in this whole paragraph, verse 13 to 18. As a result of my chains... It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. 
The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Paul gives us examples of how he's viewing his adverse circumstances. And I want to walk through those, but let me just say this. His approach is totally unique to our modern world because most people respond to adversity in one of two ways. There's the moral response, and then there's the cynical response. The moral response to adversity is every time you suffer, your first question is, what did I do? Your landlord raises your rent. You're like, how have I sinned? You got a hit with a huge tax bill. You're like, what is my transgression? Oh, Lord. But the Bible's very clear. Not all suffering is attributed to your specific choices. Now, to be sure, if you go out and make stupid decisions and break the law and you get thrown in jail, you shouldn't be questioning why you're there. Like, what is this suffering? What mystery is this? Like, well, you were stupid and you broke the law. So like, there you go. But there are many times, many situations where suffering and adversity will come upon you and it is not directly related to your choice and to your sin. And I say that with a pastoral point. In the church, there are times where those got news of perhaps a, a health concern. And other people in the church say, oh, well, you're suffering physically. It must be because you've sinned. That's why you have that disease. That's why you're sick. That's why you're struggling with that particular health problem, because you must have sinned. That's just not how the Bible talks about suffering. So we need to be careful. Many of our responses when it comes to adversity is just a moral response. Our first go-to question is, well, what would I do? What did I do? But then there's another approach. It's the cynical approach. When adversity comes, you don't say, what did I do? You say, what's the point? Oh, there we go again. Another tax bill. See, that's what I told you. See, this is, if I can just be honest, this tends to be where I go because I'm a worst case scenario kind of a guy. Anyone? Back from the support group in church. Thank you. See, there's so much speculation. Like, I, I'm the person, if I get a rash on my left arm, I'm like, well, they're going to have to amputate it. It's over. Game over. It's going to have to come off. <laughs> My wife's like, honey, you spent two minutes on WebMD. Like, you're going to be fine. <laughs> I say this because we often are very good about jumping to conclusions, which can lead to cynicism. If Paul was cynical, he'd be like, well, it's the end of the line. Say goodbye to your church planning career. I'm not even going to write this epistle because I'm in jail. It's over. Jesus, when are you going to come back? Because this is the end. Let me tell you now. But see, that view, you claim to know how it's all going to end. But friends, let's be honest. This is not an accurate view because you and I, we are not God. We do not know how this is going to turn out. We do not know where this is going to end. And it is the height of arrogance for us to think so. How do you respond to your adversity? Is it the moral approach? Oh, what did I do? Or is it the cynical approach? What does it matter? I want you to notice that Paul takes neither 
approach when it comes to his adversity. He refuses both. They're overly simplistic. And he instead asks a different question. How is this being used for the gospel? That's his question. That's like his default, his instinct. He gets in a bad situation and he's like, how is this going to be used for the gospel? Oh, that God would cause that to become our instinct. To use it in a phrase, obstacles can become opportunities. Redemptive purpose. Paul's trust in God led him to a place of humility, learning to ask the question, I wonder what good God will bring out of prison. I wonder what good God will bring out of this circumstance. And Paul gives us examples. There are three specific ways his obstacles became opportunities for his captors, his colleagues, and his competitors. I love it. Each situation can have a redemptive purpose. So what do you do when you're wrongly imprisoned and you're separated from the people you love and there are other Christians out there trying to make your life miserable? Some of you are like, how does the pastor know my life? (laughs) How is Paul viewing this? Three examples. Number one, captors can become converts. That's how I'm viewing this situation, Paul would say. I love verse 13. He says, as a result of being in prison, it has become clear to me. And I love that phrase because it carries the idea of a forest being cut away so that there can be a clear path forward. Something that was seemingly impenetrable now becomes a way to progress. In verse 13, he says, the whole palace guard which was a group of elite soldiers, about 9,000 in Paul's day. Paul's in this situation where he's being managed, watched over by them, and he's not intimidated. What does he do? He just shares the gospel. So you can imagine how it goes. They ask Paul, hey, how come you're in here? And he replies, well, it's because of what I believe. I believe that the Son of God came into this world, lived the life we never could have lived, went to a cross, a horrible cross, to die for my sin and for your sin and for everyone's sin because he was perfect. And yet, though he died and was buried, he rose again on the third day and, and into glory so that we could be forgiven and adopted and accepted forever. And one day, he's gonna make all things new. And he's sharing that with the prisoners. And the prisoner's like, what, even me? And then that prisoner tells the other prisoner, and then they tell the guard, and then the guard tells the next guard, and it goes through the whole palace. I love this example because a lot of Christians, they want to influence places of power, but they tend to have like a very prestigious view of it. Ooh, I'm going to influence, you know, this group of cultural influencers, but Paul's like, you want to know how I got my influence? I was thrown in jail. But it turns out that even your captors can become converts. What appears to be a dead end can actually serve as an advance. And I love that Paul uses that word. It advances the gospel. But there's more. Not only can captors become converts, the second example, colleagues can become courageous. In verse 14, there's a little irony here. The chains of Paul inspired the unchained Philippians. That is, the way in which Paul handled himself and conducted himself in the midst of adverse situations didn't discourage the Philippian church. It had the opposite effect. It encouraged them. They took courage. 
verse 14. So Paul was reporting how God was using his difficult circumstances for incredible purposes. They heard about Paul and they said, hey, Paul was preaching the gospel even in the midst of difficult and dark circumstances. Shouldn't that encourage me? And we see here the power of, of a good example. Courage come, becomes contagious in the way that you see other people looking for gospel opportunities even in their suffering. That's what Paul's doing here. Even so, he'll say later on, imitate me as I follow Christ. And friends, I believe that we should look to modern examples of devotion today as sources of encouragement for us. There are many parts of the world where it is illegal to function as a Christian, to practice your faith in public. But when I think back through the times in which I've had the privilege to, to meet people, one man in particular was from China. He's a leader of the underground house church in, in China. And before meeting him, we heard of all these stories. He was imprisoned. He was beaten, like all these horror stories. And yet when you meet him, he's like the most kind, joyous person you'll ever meet. He just has a sparkle in his eye when he talks about Jesus and how the gospel is spreading in China. You look at a person like that and you say, I want what you have. Even though your circumstances sound horrific, you have something that is far deeper. And what does that do? It fosters encouragement in me. It can foster encouragement in us. Paul is an example for you and for I. His greatest concern was not his circumstances. His greatest concern was the purpose that they served. How can this be used for the gospel? Well, my captors, they can hear the gospel. That's awesome. Number two, my colleagues, they can take on courage from hearing about my situation and how I'm handling it. But we need to be clear. Paul does not rejoice in the fact of his suffering, but the outcome of his suffering. It's important to notice the distinction. Christians are not these like crazy people that just love to suffer. They're like, yeah, hit me again. You want to bring me another trial, God? Go ahead. Pain is weakness leaving the body. That's not Paul. Paul doesn't get excited when he suffers. So it's not as if you're to leave home today and when you get hit with bad news, you're like, yes, suffering. I love it. Paul's not rejoicing in the fact of suffering. He's rejoicing in the outcome of suffering. He says, hey, the chains, they're not ideal. But because of these chains, you are being more courageous, church, and therefore I rejoice. And this was true even of people who were against him, even other Christians who were against him. Well, how do obstacles become opportunities? Well, Competitors can become his co-messengers. That's how he's viewing his adversity. See, in verses 15 to 18, Paul describes other Christians who though preached the gospel, they were against Paul. For whatever reason, we only have to speculate, they did not like Paul. They did not like his leadership, but they did preach the gospel. And so apparently the commentators tell us that they were going around and they were saying, hey, that guy Paul, well, the fact that he's in prison, that's not a good sign. You probably don't want to follow a leader like that. I mean, after all, he's kind of in jail. Who wants to follow a jailed pastor? Like, that's not a good thing. That's what he means in verse 17 when it says, they suppose that my chains were a sign of failure. 
And they imagined that they would succeed from Paul's troubles. Well, now Paul's taken out of the circuit. Now we get to go preach. They use their circumstance to puff themselves up. And can't we just be honest for a moment and acknowledge how hard it is when somebody else takes the credit for something that you're doing, or at least shrouds the credit for what you've done? I mean, it happens in the church all the time. You might be laboring right now in the church. You're on a ministry team. Maybe you serve in a, a community group day after day, blood, sweat, and tears, and somebody comes up to you and says, man, I just want to tell you about, I've grown so much because of other people in the church. I just want to praise God for how all these other people serve so much, and that's why I'm growing in the faith. And you're like, really? Well, yeah, I organized those groups, so really, you're growing because of what I did. But yeah, totally, totally, let's rejoice. In fact, as I reflect on that, I think of my early years as a preacher when so much of my identity was based in like, am I doing a good job? And for the first few years when we had planted Reality LA, like I preached every Sunday, didn't even miss a Sunday when I was sick. After two years, I had a few guests come in because I was gone and I came back and people were like, Tim, those two Sundays were like the best Sundays ever. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. Like, like, oh, the sermon, it was so good. And I was like, really? Wow, how good? Like, you know, like on a scale of one to 10, like, oh, it was a 10 out of 10. I'm like, oh, that's awesome, praise the Lord. So like, what, what, what's a normal, I just, I just wanna make sure that I can really praise God. Like, what, what's a normal Sunday? I'm like, oh, I don't know, 4.7, you know, out of 10. I'm like, oh, that's so good. And then I look over what they taught, and I'm like, I taught that 100 times. Did they not live? Like, I'm giving you gold, people, and yet, no, it takes the random guest person to come in. And it was as if the Holy Spirit's like, Tim, what are you talking about? That's how the Holy Spirit speaks to me. It's like, why are you, that's not a thing. If our identity is found in how other people view us, then when adversity comes, you'll be destroyed. But if your security and identity is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then like Paul, you'll be like, I don't even care that they're talking trash. I just care that the gospel is going forward. And for this reason, I rejoice. Even your competitors can become co-messengers. And these two groups of people, Paul and these competitors, they display two different ways to approach adversity. If you are at the center of your life, then you will always want something from people. But if God is at the center of your life, you will always want something for people. These competitors, they wanted praise. They wanted something from people. But for Paul, God was at the center, and therefore, he doesn't want something from them. He doesn't want their praise. He only rejoices that the gospel is going forward and that they're growing and people are getting saved. These are the examples that Paul uses. Joy is not the self-centered delight that things are going our way, but a settled peace that God is at work. See, what's the common thread in all these examples? It's not just that God works in spite of hardship, but that God works through hardship. There's a big difference. See, some of us are like, yeah, this is all bad, but somehow God will work in spite of it. Well, yes. But if you read the Bible storyline, you learn very quickly that oftentimes God doesn't only work in spite of hardship, he actually works through the hardship. Friends, at the heart of our faith, the message of Christianity is about this incredible reversal. 
the Son of God, Jesus Christ, goes to this horrible cross, even though he's perfectly innocent, and he dies a horrible death. But it's actually not a defeat. He rises again, and so it serves to to bring salvation to the whole world. What looked like a dead end for Jesus served as an advance. What looked like captivity on a cross brought about our freedom. And the envious competition of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, though they sought to bring trouble on Jesus, it only served to advance salvation and the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. God doesn't only work in spite of hardship, but often through the hardship. Because the gospel gives you a purpose that adversity can never take away. Can never take it away. This whole section shows that Paul had placed his circumstances under the authority of God. And I think that may be what all of us need to do today. What is it that you're going through? What is it that you're facing that is hard and difficult, that's bringing suffering? Have you placed that under the authority of God? Yes, God is sovereign. But as it pertains to our attitude towards God, many of these things, we just kind of hold it and we come to our own conclusions and we haven't surrendered that to God. God, I've got this bad news. I'm just going to hold on to it over here. I'm going to come to my own conclusions and I'm just going to wallow in my own pit. That is often where I am. But time and again, I need to bring those circumstances and place them under the authority of God and just say, God, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why this is so difficult. I don't know why it feels like all these doors are being shut. I don't know why the suffering is happening, but I'm going to place that under your authority and I'm going to ask, how are you going to use this for good? I don't always see it, but I'm going to ask, how are you using this for good? And I'm going to trust knowing that you are able to use it for good because I remember the gospel. I remember that you used what looked like a dead end to serve as the greatest advance the world has ever seen. Have you placed your circumstances under the authority to God? Paul is modeling a a posture of surrender here, convinced that God is able to use them for a redemptive purpose. See, when our joy is connected to the advancement of the gospel rather than our own comfort or success, or ideal circumstances, then we will not have lasting joy. But if our joy is connected to Jesus and to the advance of the gospel, then nothing can take that joy. And that leads to the last thing. Adversity is a real pain, and we should be honest about that. Don't pretend today. But adversity can serve a redemptive purpose. And God wants to shape our instincts so that when difficult things come, we ask, how can this be used for an advance? Because God, I know you're able to do that. But there's one more thing that is absolutely key for us to know and to believe, and that is this. Adversity comes with a reliable promise. Adversity comes with a reliable promise. Paul is not a stoic He's not emotionally disengaged from what's happening all around him. The reliable promise is that Jesus is with us in our adversity and that he will carry us through our adversity. Notice how he closes this paragraph in verse 19. 
He says, all this is happening. Where's my confidence from? How can you and I here at Reality Ventura have that same confidence? He says, for I know. What do you know, Paul? I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Did you notice that every sentence in this passage where he's talking about his hardship is about another person or a message? That other person is Jesus, and that message is the gospel. Jesus is the hero of the story. And the promise is twofold. Jesus meets us in our adversity. And I love this point because one of the hardest things about suffering, and anyone in the room, any one of you who's suffered, you know this, one of the hardest things about suffering is feeling like you're alone. It's easy to walk into church and be like, these people don't understand. They don't know what I'm going through. They don't know what this is like. Physical troubles, relational troubles, financial troubles, it's very easy to come in and think, nobody knows what this is like. That's what makes suffering so hard, is you just feel alienated. But there's two things to note here. First of all, Paul mentions the prayers of his friends. He asked for prayer which is a strong encouragement for you and I this morning. If you're in the midst of difficulty and hardship, by all means, pray. Paul was not above his need for prayer, and neither should we be above our need for prayer. But what does he pray for? It's prayers and the God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That was the answer to their prayers. A overwhelming sense of God's presence with him. The awareness of Christ's presence by the Holy Spirit. Our Savior, King Jesus, makes his presence known to us by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit speaks to us, empowers us, comforts us in the middle of our adversity. Friends, Jesus meets you where you're at. He meets you in your suffering. He meets you in your adversity. He is not far from you. So if we are going to endure adversity with joy, we need a greater dependence on the Spirit of God. Now you might say, well, doesn't every Christian have the Holy Spirit? Yes. When you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit makes his home in you. But listen, though the Spirit is present in every Christian, he is not always preeminent in every Christian. Though the Spirit is present in everyone who believes, He's not always preeminent, meaning we're not always yielded to Him. We're not always asking Him to to fill us or surrendering our lives to Him. Like the water supply coming into your house, the supply line could be there, but you've turned the faucet like all the way off and you just kind of open it and you're like, oh, I wish I could have more of God's power. And God's like, I'm sending it to you. It's coming on a huge water line of the Holy Spirit. And we're like, drip, drip. And you're like, I just want more. God's like, open the spigot. Pray. Read the word of God. Ask for other people to pray. Paul doesn't shy away from it. He's like, pray. And what's the answer? This unusual abundance of the presence of God in his life. That is the reliable promise given to you when you face adversity which shows us that real joy is not about the absence of hardship, but experiencing the presence of God even within the hardship. 
That is real joy. Jesus meets us in our adversity. And how does he end? By noting that Jesus will carry us through. Paul's joy is not rooted in the immediate outcome, but the ultimate outcome. He knows that God is working all things together for good. His joy is connected with Jesus. That's it. It's as if Jesus is saying to you and I today, I'm going to bring you joy by bringing you to myself. I'm going to forgive you of all your sin and your wrong, even at the cost of my own life. I'm going to rise again, bring you to myself, and nothing will separate you from me. And for Paul, he says, that's enough. That's why I can always rejoice. That is the source. It is a relationship with God who made us for himself. What is it that gave Paul this deep joy despite his circumstances? An abiding relationship with Jesus. And in that way, you and I, we can become like trees with long taproots drawing from a source of joy far deeper than what this world has to offer. Indeed, that was what was promised in the Old Testament that Jesus would bring. The prophet Jeremiah beautifully says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. That's the promise. And that promise comes true for you in Jesus. If you've not yet trusted in Jesus, you will never find real and lasting joy in this life. But if you put your faith in Jesus, you will have a joy that no one can ever take away from you. And for some of you who have been Christians for many years, today is a reminder of that. You have a source of joy that no one can take. We often use the phrase, the devil robbed me of joy. Let's add a clarifying statement to that. The devil can never rob you of your source of joy. If your source of joy is Jesus, the devil can't rob Jesus. He's like, ha ha, I took Jesus. He can't do that. He's a defeated foe. But what the devil can do is rob your attention. What the devil can do is rob your focus. You're looking at other things. You're looking to other things. And the Holy Spirit says, look to Jesus. Look to the joy that you have in Jesus. Because it's the joy that no one will take from you. Not even death. And so Jesus said to his disciples who were about to lose him in death before he went to the cross, but regain him in the resurrection, Jesus said, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Friends, that is a promise and it is a reliable promise because it is based on the finished work of Jesus. So the odds may be against you, but the power of God changes the odds. The odds may be against you when it comes to your joy, but the presence of God changes the odds. Amen? Let's ask for that unusual abundance of God's presence filling our hearts now. Heavenly Father, I pray for those in this room or joining us online who do not yet know you. I pray that right now they would realize there is no joy, no forgiveness, no eternal security apart from Jesus. 
And I pray that right now, they would trust in what you have accomplished for them through Jesus. That they would simply pray, Jesus, save me. I believe you died on a cross for my sins and rose again on the third day. I believe that you are my Savior. Father, I pray those men and women would not leave here today without making that decision and trusting in you. And Father, I pray for us as a congregation, as a people. If our joy has been anchored in lesser things, fragile things, movable, changeable things, I pray that you would reorient us right now. And that as a result, we would begin to look at even our current circumstances with a gospel perspective and childlike faith. Lord, how will you use this to advance your work? I know you are able. I'm choosing to trust you. And I pray that our time of response right now would be just that, a time of faith, a time of choosing to trust you, choosing to use the gospel to give us perspective, choosing to ask for prayer, choosing to ask for a greater awareness of your Holy Spirit in our lives, choosing to confess and turn away from sin, choosing to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, choosing to trust in that glorious future that is promised to us where you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and make all things new and there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, and no more death. May we choose to tether our joy to Jesus right now. And as a result, may we rejoice. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.